0: Young Christians, little theologians, how hard is it for you to make a choice? Like Christmas is coming pretty quickly. Have you started to think about what you might want for Christmas? How do you decide what to ask for? If you could only have one thing, how would you make that decision? What is that thing? Now, tomorrow, being Halloween, uh, many of you might go trick or treating. If your parents tell you at the end of the night, Only one piece of candy. Now, no parent's going to tell you that, but if they did, what would you choose? I want you to draw me a picture this morning of the piece of candy that you would choose, and then ask your parents later on about some hard decision they've had to make. And then listen in the sermon about this thing about choosing and about God. All right? Uh, If you bring that picture up to me after the service, I think we have some prizes around here or something. Maybe you'll get one. All right, with that, let's, uh, let's pray. God, help us today as we come to your word that, um, yeah, it is. Uh, your word alone is our place to find uh, Jesus. That in your scripture, you tell the story of Jesus from first page to last. And you invite us into that story, the story that you're weaving, both in the past and what you've accomplished for us, and then how it impacts us in the future. And and to know how to live in the future, we we look back to your word. It is our only hope for life and salvation, that in its pages we might find Jesus. And so we pray this morning that as we come to your word, that you would help us. Help us to, once again, um, come to your word for hope, life, and peace. Because in its pages, you tell us about Jesus. Help us to place ourselves under it brightly, um, needing it, dependent upon it. And we pray that your spirit would be active amongst our hearts this morning, bringing transformation from the the littlest among us to the oldest. We ask this in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. So children and adults, um, same kind of question. When you have to make a decision, what gets you to move and make one? Currently, we have been trying to buy a car Uh, this market isn't super conducive to receiving any kind of deal on a car. We've been looking and looking and looking. We don't want to spend too much, so we're looking for a very used car. We've probably looked at 20 cars in person and hundreds more online. We've had our chances to buy, and we've had some just disappear right under our noses. Like I've encountered a few ghosts. Um, One guy met us at Target, tried to leverage me into a bidding war, which I refused. He then agreed to sell the car to us about 300 uh, more than my budget, and I, I agreed to buy it at that price. And then we settled up to meet, and then he didn't show up. I have another guy I've been talking to in Crucis for the last six weeks or so. We had we set up and, and met. I drove, test drove one of his cars, and I found out he had three more like it. And then I messaged him again to try to test the, drive those cars. The next weekend we were down there And nothing. And then Sunday on our way out of town, he texts me back and says, hey, dude, where are you? And I'm like, bro, I've been texting you all weekends. Where are you? Like, we've been ghosted. Now, one of the difficulties of such a major purchase is deciding. We've obviously struggled with this. There have been several cars just waiting for us to pull the trigger, but it seemed there was always something keeping us from it. We looked at a couple cars ready to buy, but there was this one thing, this one thing that caused us to pull back, to grow a little cold at the thought. A rattle, a rumble, a check engine light, a blemish, something. And there, then there has been two options, two cars, equal in blemish and promise. And yet here we sit, needing a car, but still carless. Now, an additional point about this for me is that the minute I happen to make a decision and buy something, a car in this case, it closes the door on all the other possibilities. Now, some of you might struggle to make decisions because you are fearful about not getting it right. Others struggle because decisions close the door on possibilities. What do you do when you need to make such a decision? How do you decide? Like it could be, do I get married? Do I move into a new place, take this new job, go to this school, date this person? Like, they're my friend? What if we're no longer friends after we date? Like, all these are big decisions. And for some of us, we're frozen by the need for decisiveness. For others of us, we make such decisions with an air of flippancy. We just go for it and worry about the cost later. But then we find ourselves seeking to repair the bad mistake, and that causes a different type of pain and later indecision. Now, let's add a wrinkle to this. What if these decisions have a bit of a bite? Like, what if they're moral questions? Questions in the realm of some moral ambiguity, or maybe not ambiguous, but simply wrong. You you know what it is, but you want it so bad. And then there's always forgiveness. Like asking forgiveness is easier than permission kind of thing. How do you decide? What if this decision is more on the level of this? Choose you this day whom you will serve kind of decisions. Like Denver or Dallas. Where are you at, people? (laughs) Or maybe we hurdle towards, as we hurdle towards election day, who do I vote for in a world of no good choices? Or more seriously, Like you know that a certain decision you are making will pull you into a trajectory that will lead you someplace and make things complicated. What do you do? You find yourself in this stuck place. This in-between, kind of limping between two decisions, unable to make a decision because of fear, fear of getting it wrong, fear of the cost, fear of failing, fear of limiting yourself, you're unsure, and when you make one, you're looking back, rethinking, second-guessing. Now, I find it interesting on our text this morning that Elijah at Mount Carmel, now this area is perhaps at the base of the mountain of Mount Carmel, near the river Kishon, There's this big amphitheater that's formed there. Here, Elijah addresses Israel. Mount Carmel is located in the land of Baal, the god of the Canaanites. 800 feet of Mesa sticking out, the highest point in the region. Let's read, starting in verse 19. Now, therefore, send and gather all of Israel to me at Mount Carmel, and the 450 prophets of Baal, and the 400 prophets of Asherah, who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel, and Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is your God, follow him, but if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Now, according to our text, it is here where Elijah draws near. Here in this place, with 450 prophets of Baal, 400 prophets of Asherah, and he, the one, here at the altar of Baal. And the altar of Israel, we'll read later, had fallen into ruins. And yet, Elijah still comes. Now, don't forget, he is the enemy. There is still no rain in the land. There has not been rain in Israel for three three and a half years, and he is the scapegoat for such things. And the people have gathered there at Mount Carmel, perhaps most likely to see his demise and maybe even his execution. And yet, Elijah comes in weakness and shame, and he draws near to the fevered crowd, And ask them this one question. How long will you go limping between two different opinions? That word, like an uneven walk, a back and forth between Yahweh and Baal. If we can, we grab a little bit of this, a little bit of that, and then some some from over here limping between different things. When I was in uh, Winston-Salem a few weeks ago, I spent some time with my uh, friend Chris Horn. Chris is the RUF campus minister at Wake Forest. And Wake is this beautiful campus, great campus, small, intimate, but full of beauty. But they have this thing called the pit. And the pit's like the best school cafeteria I've ever experienced. Like they had 10 different food stations including a section for home cooking and like steak and a pizza, pasta bar, staples like salad and those things. They also have a vegan section, a grill station, a sandwich station, even a fresh bakery, a place for choosing your own water, tap, carbonated, ambient. And then all the flavors for that. It's Xanadu. I even took a video of all the stations as I was walking through the cafeteria. And I did this so I could text it to my daughter, Blakely, because she uh, goes to New Mexico State, and Taos Cafeteria, it's not quite in that league, and so I was kind of like wanting to make her feel bad, like how how bad Taos is, and how great the pit is, and as I'm walking through filming, like, I notice a guy starts following me, and he's the, like, the head of the pit, and he comes up to me, he says, I mean, he might have thought I was some creepy old man, too, being in a college cafeteria, but it, he was like, what are you doing? What are you filming? And I was like, oh, I just wanted to make my daughter who's at another school jealous. And then he was like relieved. Oh, oh, okay, go right ahead, beaming with pride, keep filming. So this is us, right? We, we prefer a cafeteria type of existence when it comes to God. A little of this, a little of that, that. we add to the cafeteria plan of something that works for me. And this is Israel. They haven't said there is no Yahweh, or even that they won't do some of the things that make Israel Israel. Like they still practice feasts and festivals and high holy days. And so into that, Elijah draws near to the people and says, how long will you limp between these two things? Like, when will you give up the bales or ditch the Lord? And the question in that is, who really is God? Who who is the one that has Israel's worship? Now, underneath that, right, is the true truism that everyone worships something. As creatures, we are made to worship. In fact, we cannot not worship. Now, from a street-level view... Worship is whatever consumes our thoughts, controls our emotions, and directs our day-to-day actions. Now, kids, I want you to think about this. If you're a kid in this room, what are the things that when you get up in the morning and you go to sleep at night, what are the things that you spend your day and your life thinking about? What are the things that then, as you think about it, that you then spend your time doing. All your energy is spent on some things, kids. What are those things? That's what you worship. Now, ancient cultures may have carved their gods in wood and stone, but gods formed with professional degrees and bank accounts are no less idols. If Israel's implication in idolatry was directly connected with their agricultural economy... Now, remember, the Baals are, and, and the Asher are the gods of fertility, of fruitfulness, of success. They offered gifts to those idols so that they might receive fruitfulness, success. How might Elijah's challenge? How might his challenge to the people of limping between two things challenge our knowledge economy, Those professional degrees, highly dependent on consumer capital. Now, an idol can be any good thing that we trust for a sense of dignity or significance or security. They offer us control, but they end up controlling us. And so the question is, who do you worship? Because everybody worships something. There isn't a choice, do I worship? No, everyone worships, and the question is, who or what do you worship? Now, Israel is worshiping, and the drought has brought them to the end of themselves, and they're here, perhaps by chance, waiting for the Baals to rain down, and the Asherah to rain down on Elijah, and to bring rain to the lands. They could perform the rituals. They could find acceptance and community with those around them. There's social power in worshiping the Baals. There's political power there too. It's the way of the king and the queen. There is a promise of hope, of prosperity, fruitfulness, and success, fertility, family, and crops. And Israel is limping between the worship of Baal and Yahweh. And they can't have it both ways. If the Lord is God, Elijah says, follow him. But if Baal is God, then follow him. And the people do not answer him a word. The people are silent. And there's lots of this in this text, this silence. When we enter the chapter, Ahab speaks. And then he's silent. The prophets of Baal will speak and scream and limp and dance. And then they grow quiet. And the people hear Elijah's question, how long will you go limping? And they're silent. I want you to think about that this morning, where you're at. What's your answer to who you're you're worshiping? What's your answer to what are you limping between? And what does it take for you to move from limping between two things to following Jesus permanently? What would it take for you to stop worshiping your idols of professional degrees and consumer capital. For starters, this morning, it might be just a little bit of honesty, like being honest that this is where you're at. Not in resignation as much as truthfulness. A confession. This is where I am. I I am limping between two opinions. I am trying to serve God and money. I am trying to serve God and my family. Now, my family could be, by family, it could be your parents' opinions. It could be this nostalgic longing for home. It could be expectations of family that moves you away and not closer to the Lord. I'm worshiping that. I'm wanting that. It could be you have to, you're limping between the two opinions of trying to serve God and ease or comfort. We we limp between the cost of discipleship and our comforts that force us to do things like take up our crosses and die. could be work. We we limp between success, fulfillment, praise, adoration, something to do, tasks to complete, problems to solve. Here I can fix things. Here I can get something done. The rest of my life is chaos, but here at work, people know me, They know I get the job done. And so you're limping between the opinions of all of that that's encompassed in your job and your work and the Lord. Maybe it's just some level of enoughness where you're tempting to be enough in your life. And this can venture into the realm of God where we want to know and follow God or have done enough before we follow God or be enough or somehow that somehow God might accept me. And that enoughness leaks into everything else, and so we limp and we dance and we duck and we dodge and we dip and we dive between two options. So maybe the place of starting this morning is there. I am a limper. I try to have God and this. This is where we are. Well, Elijah, the man of God, confronts the people of God, here in the middle of their limping. And out Mount Carmel, Carmel, he asks, How long will you keep doing this? And then he sets themself, himself up to stop their limping. And this leads us to the contest. Now there are a few plot moves we're going to work through in this section. It's dramatic, it's humorous, but it also points, and it is a powerful uh, uh, example of the confronting act of God's mercy. And this is what I want you to see here. God is merciful. He's merciful in his condescension to help Israel to stop limping. And this morning, as we are all limpers, God is also merciful to you, to condescend to you here through his word and through the sacrament later to help you stop your limping. Now, verses 22 to 25 Elijah says, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Now, there is a question about Obadiah and the hundred prophets that are hidden in the cave. Is Elijah just being melodramatic? Or probably just stating the obvious, he is the only one who is showing himself publicly to Ahab and the prophets of Baal. He says, verse 23. Let two bulls be given to us and let them choose one bull for themselves and cut it into pieces and lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. And then you call upon the name of your God and I will call upon the name of the Lord, the God who answers by fire. He is God. And all the people answered, it is well spoken. And here is the way God is merciful. God answers. God answers. God's merciful condescension, his coming down to show Israel that he is God and move them from their limping. God will answer, Elijah says, by fire. Now, move two. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose for yourself one bull, prepare first, for you are many and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And they took the bull that was given to them and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And so they limped around the altar that they had made. The prophets of Baal choose their bull, call for fire, morning until noon, no answer. So they limp. Here's a play on words. As Israel limped between Yahweh and Baal, now the prophets limp. It's kind of a dance that they're doing around the altar as part of their worship. The this limping that the prophets are doing is the has the same results as it does for Israel, and they're limping. It is impotent. There is no answer even with all the limping. Verse 27, And at noon, Elijah mocks them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is musing, or he is relieving himself, or he's on a journey, or perhaps he's asleep and he must be awakened. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of oblation. But there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. You know, Elijah jumps in. It's quite a scene. He begins to mock the prophets of Baal. Elijah's like Doc Holliday walking out of the bar in Tombstone. He's come to pick a fight. He's come to contend for the name of Yahweh, And there is something here, right? Like, I know we live in delicate times, but Elijah is clear. If you rely on the gods of your own making to save you, they mock your devotion by their silence. Cry aloud. Maybe he's musing. Or on the toilet. Or traveling. I knew you'd like that, D. Or asleep. Elijah is trying to get them to see that their God is not God. Because not only doesn't he answer, but he can't. He gives this God human characteristics to help them see that Baal isn't even a human. He is nothing but something they have conjured and made to worship, and they are quickly becoming like him, deaf and silent. We are all what we worship. And so the prophets get even more manic and dark. Again, make no mistake, the Canaanite gods and goddesses are ruthless. They demand life. This is why their children and others are offered as human sacrifices. Blood is demanded. And before we start rolling our eyes at their ancient ways of being, we we would never do that. Do we need to look no further than the ways we're willing to offer lives? for other things. Like when you get angry, why is it that we all want blood? We all want our enemies to pay. Spend some time on Twitter when a national event, a sporting event, a contest, an election is happening. You will see the cries for blood. When idols fail, oh man, how do we want payment? Someone has to pay. And so the prophets of Baal just over themselves, we will pay, so you might hear. So they rave. Have you ever been to a rave? I'm guessing not many of you. To dance through the night, non-stop, pulsating action from one song to the next. The thing about a rave, the dancing and the music can never stop. Why? The intoxicating grip of the rave is to keep the party going. That word limp is also that word for dance. And this is how, how how often how impassioned and driven we are to find life in dead things. We are all the young poets in Mr. Keating's English class looking uh looking for our barbarian Yelp so we can suck the marrow out of life. And we, when we can't find life in this thing, we quickly run to the next thing. And when that fails to deliver, we change the song. And we rave through life, raging against the, not, the night. We heed the words, do not go gently into that good night. Rage, rage, rage against the dying of the light. And even when we, we cry for li- the cry for life is silent. We don't give up the impotence of our idols we just change the song and the dance, and we keep moving. Elijah said to the people, verse 30, "Come near to me." And all the people came near to him. I think their coming near this time is different than they're coming near the first time. And there's that word of Elijah, the man of God. Drawing near to the people of God with the word of God. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. And he took the 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the son of Jacob. To whom the word of the Lord came saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord. Now notice Elijah builds the altar of remembrance. He is delicately and gently helping them see that Yahweh is a God who answers. And then he made a trench about the altar as great as would contain two sias of seed. It sounds like impressive. It's just three or four gallons of water. And he put the wood in order and cut the wool in pieces and laid it on the wood. Again, notice the care the gentleness, the orderliness. I mean, Elijah is the example in this moment of a non-anxious presence. Imagine the scene, right? The prophets of Baal with their screaming and dancing and cutting. And there's this quiet, deliberate way of Elijah, and he's teaching Israel in all of this. And he says, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. Again, we're in a famine. There's no water. Elijah's like Chevy Chase and three amigos. The amigos are dying of thirst. He has a canteen of water. He drinks it all and he throws it on the ground on the desert floor. How can he do this? He knows the God who hears. His God truly provides water for bodies and souls. And he said, do it a second time. Doubling down. More water, please. And then a third time. Do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran. Again, famine, no water. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. Elijah's God, Yahweh is his name. He is a God who answers. This is why Elijah is doing this. He is making it plain. Even as the people have endured the limping dance of the prophets of Baal for eight hours or more, he is quietly at rest hear this church in our anxious time? What is the anxious world cutting themselves out in the the streets of our city? What do they need? They need the non-anxious presence of the people of God who step in with gentleness and make appeals before them to the Lord. He is quietly at rest in God because this is the God who hears and answers. Elijah knows this because he's been in a place where he's had to bank on God and God has provided for him. Verse 36, "...and at the time of the offering of oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant." and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that the people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. Notice how Elijah knows that by seeing God, that's how their hearts will change. There's nothing the people can do in and of themselves for their hearts to be changed. God has to reveal himself to them. Verse 38, Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust, licked up the water that was in the trench, and when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, Oh, oh, oh the Lord, he is God, the Lord, Yahweh, he is God. Elijah here addresses God, Oh, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day. Answer me, O oh Lord. The real God answers. Idols can't talk, they can't hear, they can't see. I wouldn't give my some, something. I wouldn't give my heart to something who can't answer me. Oh, but we do over and over again. And yet, God condescends. God condescends and answers. And the second thing God does, He remembers. He remembers His promises. Elijah addresses God in the terms of a God who remembers his promises, his covenant. And here's why this is good news. Because even though the people forget, God remembers. Baal, the God of our own making, forgets us. Right? Do you see this? How in these moments, when we're indulging ourselves In the both and, like when we're limping in between, thinking we got this thing figured out and are just soaring, something comes along like famine or drought, suffering or affliction, knocks us flat on our faces. And right then the question is, who can deliver me or save me? And so then we start the dance. And for us, the dance is about scheming and strategizing, fixing and doing. We get a new financial stream. We, we try a new investment. We give ourselves to making a brand new me. We go to therapy. We join groups. We get a new job. We read a book. We, we lean into our family of origin. We go on vacation. We get away. This is our dance. When things are hard, when our energy is stolen, when we're sick and hurting, we use our means and we go to work. But what happens? Crushing weight and burden just continues to fall on our shoulders. And the objects of our worship keep making demands. Like if you're the vacation goer, like the next voc- vacation offers more promise and you have to meet the demand. The prophets of Baal limp around the altars, double down, cry louder, suffer the losses, cut themselves till the blood flows. Like we move from affirmation where we're going to fix this thing to resignation, cutting ourselves in our shame with the knives of our words. We, we sit in our sackcloth and ashes. We feel miserable. We tell ourselves, this is what we deserve for doing this or that. We're all like prodigals in the pig pen, right? Eating with the pigs, blood flowing from our mouths, taking one on the chin once again from life. We've forgotten that God is in those places. And God offers himself as something that can actually save us. We've made professional success our God, and then we find that we will never achieve enough, or we've made status and appearance our God. So we have to hide our insecurities behind clothes and cars and and, and Instagram posts, braggio achievements. We, we've made money, our God, and so we're, we're anxious about losing it and even striving to make more. We've made children or grandchildren our God. So here, we sit controlled by their happiness. We, we've made p- religious performance our God. And here we are with abiding anxiety that we're not good enough. It can never be good enough. I mean, look at me. Look at where I am. Here we are dying a thousand deaths around the altars of our death and silent gods. And we sit around those altars, and we keep going back. We keep limping around the altar, screaming, making noise, forgetting God. But God does not forget you. The last number of years of my grandma's life were filled with forgetting. Her mind slowly eroded away. At first, it was mostly insignificant things like dates and times. And then there was the confusion about the stories, mixing things together, Then it was names and faces, and then it was just faces. She forgot her wedding day. She forgot her kids. Like, not all the time, but slowly, nearly, and then completely. And yet my grandpa, he didn't forget. He remembered for her the eating of the breakfast, what food she liked and didn't. Every time he showed up, he showed up with a can of Pepsi. It's a shame, Grandma. He remembered her medicine, when to take it, how much. But more than that, he remembered their story for her. He retold it time and time again. The same things, over and over. We lived here. It happened on this day. We met here. We have this many children. Over and over and over. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel has a bride that loses her mind, has a son and daughter wandering off in the far country. We forget who we are. We forget who God is. We forget he is our loving spouse. We forget he is our welcoming father. But the good news is God remembers. He doesn't forget us. Yahweh knows our name. Even if you have made a bed in the pigsty of your own making this morning, there is a father who has not forgotten you. He remembers. He keeps his promises. Elijah says, you have not forgotten. And the people see the Lord. The Lord, he is God. And so Elijah prays, Yahweh answers, and this leads to the last move, verse 40. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal, let not one of them escape. And they seized them, and Elijah brought them down to the brook at Kishon and slaughtered them there. Not the happy ending, maybe, you hoped for. Why the slaughter? Elijah's confrontation with our gods was a mini-enactment, an anticipation of the great battle when God will intervene in history to vindicate his name and completely eradicate all the gods that crush us from existence. Meredith Klein calls this moment divine intrusion, when divine justice and judgment falls into real-time history. And that's what happens here at the brook of Kishon. The answering and remembering God is seen as a God who is jealous for our worship, who is not mocked. A God who not only delivers mercy, but a God who delivers judgment. A God who is just. We must sit into this. It is troubling, and yet it anticipates Fire falls from heaven and consumes everything on the altar. Carmel anticipates. Now hear this as we finish. Carmel anticipates another mountain. A mountain outside of Jerusalem where the fire of God's judgment falls on a substitute Israel. When Jesus, the altar of God, is crucified to save his people. How does the fire of judgment not fall on us for all our idolatry and all our leading others to do the same? Well, by falling on Jesus. At the cross, Jesus receives the just punishment for our limping, our dancing, our bleeding for the gods of money, sex, and power, for the crushing weight of keeping up with the Joneses and trying not to age, and all the ways we're trying to be our own, make our own name, follow our dreams, be our true self, like the weight of being your own in the world that gives you everything to be your own without the warning. Oh, that's not a way to be human, and that's not a way to know God. All this fire, and it is fire. We've all been burned by it, right? All the fire, all that fire falls on Jesus. And this is how God shows mercy to us. This is how he hears and answers and remembers because of Jesus. Jesus, his son, is the substitute. The fire falls on him. In exchange, we are given the life that we've tried to suck out of all the other things. And for it, it costs Jesus his life. But the Father receives that sacrifice, resurrects that Christ, and the life given to him is then given to you and I. And so this, friends, is how we can stop the limping. This is how we can turn from our idols and hear from this gentle God and know that we're remembered because the life of Christ is now given to you and I. And all the ways we limp between two things, like when you limp between those two things now in Christ, it doesn't taste quite right. The marrow that we suck doesn't seize the day. It's bound up in the living God. That life you're seeking is bound up in the living God who sees you hears you and remembers you let's pray god help us help us to cast down our idols this morning and turn to you as we come to the altar and taste your remembrance as we remember you we we taste your very remembrance of us the broken bread and the poured out wine. How do we know? You remember us. We come to the table and we reenact that memory that you have written your name in your book, that you have branded us with your name on our forehead and written our names on your thigh, You do not forget us. So help us to respond to you, the living God, by casting down all our idols that we seek to save us.